DiscerningHearts.com, in cooperation with the Archdiocese of Omaha, presents Why It Matters, an exploration of faith with Archbishop George Lucas. Pope Francis, in his encyclical letter, Lumen Fidei, The Light of Faith, said that faith's past, the act of Jesus' love which brought new life to the world, comes down to us through the memory of others, witnesses, and is kept alive in that one remembering subject, which is the Church. The Church is a mother who teaches us to speak the language of faith. In that spirit, this series of conversations with Archbishop Lucas brings the many aspects of the Catholic faith and why it matters, not only to the individual, but also to families, communities, and the world at large. Why it matters, an exploration of faith with Archbishop George Lucas. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. In the following conversations, Archbishop Lucas will help us to understand why being Catholic matters. The dogmatic constitution of the Church, Lumen Gentium, number 14, states that, basing itself on Scripture and tradition, the Church, a pilgrim now on earth, is necessary for salvation. The one Christ is mediator, and the way of salvation. He is present to us in his body, which is the Church. He himself explicitly asserted the necessity of faith and baptism, and thereby affirmed at the same time the necessity of the Church, which men enter through baptism as through a door. Conversion is indeed only initial, sufficient, however, to make a man realize that he has been snatched from sin and is being led into the mystery of God's love, who invites him to establish a personal relationship with him in Christ. Under the movement of divine grace, the new convert sets out on a spiritual journey by means of which, while already sharing through faith in the mystery of the death and resurrection, he passes from the old man to the new man, who has been made perfect in Christ. Welcome, Archbishop Lucas. Thank you, Chris. It's great to be with you. It is an extraordinary experience for someone who is sitting on the pew in a cathedral on the first Sunday of Lent, watching the line of people that will come forward and greet you at the rite of election. What is that like for you? It's an extraordinary experience for me, too. You should have the view that I have, seeing this line of, of people come up the long aisle of our cathedral uh, so that I can have the opportunity to greet them and welcome them uh, in the name of the church personally in the sanctuary. This year, for some reason, people seem more relaxed and more joyful than usual. Maybe that was my imagination or maybe that was just me projecting because I was certainly enjoying it. Part of the rite of Christian initiation for adults that on the first Sunday of Lent, as you mentioned, the catechumens, those who are preparing for full initiation into the church, presumably at, at Easter time, have the opportunity to be introduced to the diocesan church and welcomed, you might say, into the larger family of the local church. They're already somewhat acquainted with their parish community. 
We also have others we might say tag along. And uh, in many cases, it's the case here, there would be more of those candidates who are already baptized, but who are in a process of continuing conversion. They look forward to coming into full communion with the Catholic Church at Easter. They're already our brothers and sisters in Christ because of baptism. So we don't want to confuse them with those who are up until now have not been part of the body of Christ, but we are about to welcome. As a matter of practice, most parishes find that it works well to have the two groups in a period of formation together. Usually there's catechesis that's necessary for both the catechumens and the candidates. The, the kind of question and group dynamic that can help with that formation is enriched, I think, by all being together along with sponsors and other team members. It's incredible moment when you think about it, Archbishop, because in our culture, there is a unfortunate understanding of what it is to be a Catholic. And there will be many fallacies, some distortions of particular aspects of it. It's amazing why anyone would want to become a Catholic, and yet they do. Becoming a Catholic, why does that matter? In my experience, these days, uh, people who come to the Catholic Church uh, seeking the fulfillment of the religious experience, you might say, in this world, are responding to a call from our Lord Jesus Christ. They've heard that call mediated in various ways through other people, through their own prayer, through a stirring in, in their hearts, for example. Often, of course, they've been influenced and are accompanied by someone else, maybe a spouse. Or It was beautiful. There were a number of sponsors who came forward this year at Lent to introduce their catechumen or candidate, and it was their parent. So the adult child presumably had come to the Lord some way. I was going to say on their own, not on their own totally, you know, but not because of, of a family setting. And then at some point, the mother or father is also, maybe through that child's example and through their prayer and accompaniment, also hears the call of our Lord to come to him in the church. And so they are responding to that call too. But that's it, basically. And of course, that's the reason why we have the church. We're not just trying to increase membership, kind of as if we were increasing our market share somehow. And we don't have any material commodity to offer people in this world. But we do have a rich experience of life in Christ in a community of, of believers that uh, we have experienced as good for all of us, all of us here. We know the Lord established the church really so that he can remain present and there's the possibility of encountering him in every place and in every age through the power of the Holy Spirit and through the witness of his disciples. That witness of his disciples, that sharing of the faith, whether a child with a parent or vice versa, ultimately it leads them to the doors of the church, that community of believers. And it's so extraordinary that when you really read the beautiful liturgy, the rites of the church, it's an act of reception, isn't it? When I say that, you're receiving into this body something or someone who has been called to it. That's right. There are many images, most of them based in the scripture, you know, that help us understand that. We use the gospel passage in our uh, rite of election uh, this year of, of the vine and the branches. So it's a recognition that the the one who is being incorporated into the church is being grafted onto the vine, who is Jesus himself. Talk about being incorporated into the body of Christ, becoming a member of the body. But it's the church, the living body of Christ, now in this contemporary world, is being sent out by the Lord to proclaim the gospel and to invite those who, who are receiving the gift of faith to respond in faith and 
to seek baptism. That was the, the dynamic that we saw first on Pentecost when the gospel was first proclaimed in a public way, we might say, after the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. That's the same dynamic today. We recognize really an exchange of gifts. So we're receiving new members into the community of the church, and each one of them is unique. So each one brings something to the life of the church, the experience of our faith together in Christ that we haven't had before in, in just exactly that way. So it's part of my joy at the rite of election, other times too, but to try to communicate the joy of, of, of all of us in the church coming to know and be able to welcome uh, new members. But then, of course, there's also the blessings that, that are received by those who come into the sacramental life of the church through baptism, confirmation, and, and Eucharist. There is then that mutual exchange, so it's, we're mutually enriched. But the head of the body is the Lord himself, so Jesus is the head of the church. So we come to him, we're incorporated into him. There's an exchange of gifts in that process, but it's not simply just people getting to know one another and liking each other or associating, but it really is the attraction of Christ and those who are already grafted onto the vine and who, who are doing their best to live as his disciples, welcoming those who seek the life of discipleship. I know that for me, I can fall into this danger of wonderful moments like that as looking at them as ceremonies. And I suppose you could say they are. But there's something deeper going on here because this is, a, as you said, the sacramental life of the church. And even though they are not at this moment receiving the sacraments fully as they will after Easter, there is a sacramentality, this shared prayer of the whole church in that moment. You see it, people tears, and they can't explain it. And joy, as you said, that that only comes from grace, doesn't it? It's the act of grace, certainly. And I think for any of us, if we've gone through a process of conversion, we may question ourselves. We wonder if we're crazy. Maybe we have doubts or concerns or joys. I think, well, maybe I'm the only person that's ever experienced this. And when we're brought into the community of believers and those experiences are affirmed by others and others are ready to encourage us or maybe even nudge us in a better direction lovingly, there's a great consolation in that and a, a kind of homecoming. We're made for the Lord. As St. Augustine says, our hearts are restless till we rest in God. And so there is a sense very often, especially in an adult convert, of, you know, finally, I'm, I'm coming to the place that my heart has been leading me. You're, you're right, though, in any of these rituals, uh, we're not simply flipping a switch, or it's not somebody just crossing a line, like a finish line uh, in a race, but we're both celebrating and furthering a process that the Lord himself has initiated in his invitation to the man or woman who's being called to life in him. Now, as I said earlier, it will mean a change for the better, both for the individual and for the church, so we celebrate that together. That image of the finishing line, it's not finished, it's just beginning, isn't it, mm -hmm. in a very real way? Mm -hmm. Yeah, St. Paul you know, refers to running the race, you know, and the importance of staying in the race till the very end. The finish line is when we pass from this world to the next and then are recognized that we're, we are where we've always been anyway in the, in the Lord's hands, but it's you know, a new chapter in, in the life of grace at that point. In the meantime, we're always on the way. No matter how long we've been in the race, no matter how long we've been uh, sharing in the sacramental life of the church, we can stumble and get distracted, kind of go into neutral for a while maybe and, and not really be moving forward just because of laziness or distraction or maybe because of illness or some other thing. That's why the community of believers is, is so important because we rally around each other and give encouragement. And when somebody, for whatever reason, has slowed down, kind of 
fight for them and encourage them so that the process, the, the lifelong pilgrimage, we might say, can continue. The Lord understands all that about us. You know, he had very, what we would consider normal people as his disciples. And so they had their pluses and minuses. And he was patient with them. And even when they stumbled or when they were distracted or selfish, he found a way to help them move forward, which is always his desire. We'll return to Why It Matters, an exploration of faith with Archbishop George Lucas in just a moment. Hi, this is Chris McGregor of Discerning Hearts, which is a 501c3 fully tax-deductible nonprofit organization dedicated to evangelization and spiritual formation through the use of new media. Discerning Hearts creates engaging multimedia specializing in podcasts and radio broadcasts faithful to the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church and its rich, authentic spiritual tradition. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission. And if you feel us worthy, please consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible to support our efforts. We charge nothing for any of the programs that are available on Discerning Hearts, and our outreach is literally to the world. Please tell a friend about Discerning Hearts and either download our free apps, which are available at iTunes and Google Play stores, or visit discerninghearts.com. The Creed I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father, through him all things were made. For us men and for our salvation he came down from heaven, and by the Holy Spirit was incarnate of the Virgin Mary and became man. For our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, he suffered death and was buried, and rose again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son who with the Father and the Son is adored and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. I confess one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, and I look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. We now return to Why It Matters, an exploration of faith with Archbishop George Lucas. The rite of Christian initiation of adults, if I remember correctly, really began to become practiced or was given to the church in the United States, at least, in around 1983. At that time, parishes began to experience during the period of Lent what they understood as the scrutinies there on the third 
third, fourth, and fifth Sundays of Lent. You may walk into a church, sit down, and all of a sudden something different's happening here. There's a process that we are praying for a release from sin, but also an enlightenment and a filling more of the Holy Spirit. And that is a wonderful aspect that was brought from the ancient church back to today's church, wasn't it? It was the vision of the Second Vatican Council that the RCIA, the Rite of Christian Initiation for Adults, be restored and really become common practice in our uh, in our parishes. It, because uh, new members are being initiated in, into the church, it's important that the church participate in that process with them. And as you said earlier, that we receive them, that, that we welcome them and support them. So during the um, what's sometimes called the period of purification and enlightenment for them during the season of Lent, it's an opportunity for us to witness their desire, witness their repentance, all of those things, but, but then also to look inward and recall that we too have been initiated and that, again, it wasn't just crossing a line or checking a box, that that's a, it initiated us into, into the pilgrimage that we are on in the church uh, to our Father's house. By recalling our own initiation, renewing our, our commitment, renewing repentance when, when that's necessary, kind of in harmony with those who are becoming members. It's a, Lent becomes a time of renewal for us as well. And that's a, an important reason why Lent matters, because for many Catholics, they have maybe come to a point where that joy and enthusiasm for the faith, or maybe even their understanding of it because of the particular formation they received either at a young age or in young adulthood. It just wasn't enough to help them in this journey. And so Lent is an opportunity to enter into that. We can never count on the fact that since we have been baptized and, and confirmed that we've received of this shot of spiritual energy that's going to take last us our whole life long without any attention, without any ongoing formation, practicing virtue, deepening the life of prayer, all of those things are expected of a disciple as we continue to mature in the faith. In one sense, we might say Lent is an opportunity to sort of recapture our identity, the identity that God himself gives us at the time of our initiation in, into the church and into the, the life of Christ. He claims us as his daughters and, and sons, brings us into the household of faith, and promises the inheritance that is only able to be received by those who are full members of, of the family, we might say. Jesus has identified himself so closely with us in becoming one of us in, in his death and, and resurrection that our Heavenly Father, we might say, con confirms that, that identity and sees us too as brothers and sisters of his son Jesus, his own daughters and sons. From the time of our baptism at the time of our initiation, it's as if God is announcing his loving plan for us that we have eternal life with our sins forgiven. We sometimes struggle against that or we think we have a better plan, that's sin. But during the season of Lent, we recall who we are and we try to renew those practices or give up those things, all those forms of, of both uh, positive practices and, and mortification that help reorient us again to our understanding that, that we're God's beloved daughters and, and sons, that, that an eternal destiny awaits us if we'll receive it. God won't interfere with our freedom, but it, we're invited in to use the, the powerful gift of freedom to choose God's design for us, which is all about life and abundant life. The Lenten practices of prayer, fasting, and almsgiving are really designed to help us do that, to let God be God in our lives, to recognize where we have tried to take over, where we've been selfish, willful, 
to practice them, self-denial, not simply for its own sake, but so to create a, a space and a practice, really, of letting God be God and letting God's plan be the guiding principle, the guiding force of our lives, of our decisions. It is a, a time of great renewal. And as you said, the, sometimes the consolations that will come from having that encounter and to be able to do those things, they really needs to become food for the journey. Because even though Easter may come, if for some, when we go back out into the world, when we begin to just live it as we would call an ordinary time, which is nothing ordinary about it, but you find you can find yourself almost in the desert again, in a time of temptation, where now you're faced with many of the challenges that will come to that relationship. Sometimes with coworkers, family members, friends who will say to you, well, I, what is it about the Catholic Church? You have so many doctrines and dogmas and you're being told what to do. And we sit there and we don't know how to respond to that, Archbishop. Yeah, I would say a couple things about that. First, that it, that's the normal condition of a disciple of Jesus, I would think. Not that we always don't know what to say, but we're commissioned by the Lord to go out. And, and so we need to be out in our whatever our mission field is that, that the Lord gives us. And part of the reason he's sending us there is because the light of the gospel perhaps is not shining there, and he's asking us to bring it. Um, there are people in those situations, maybe in our families, maybe in our workplace, who have not yet met the Lord, and Jesus would like us to make the introduction if we would be willing to do that. So I think we want to make sure that we don't see, well, you know, we're living in a time of particular hostility and difficulty, and we'd like to have a nicer time when we could just be around nice people who all share the faith in the same way that we do. Uh, It's important that we are rooted in a community of believers where we can support one another. But it's also essential if we're going to be disciples of Jesus truly that that we're ready to go out and that we're really open to those encounters, which are sometimes discouraging, some, sometimes more than encounters or confrontations, and where we might even be attacked you know, because of, of uh, who we are and, and what, uh, what we believe. The second thing I would say is that, um, again, uh, similar to the first, it's a normal situation that, that uh, it would be the work of the devil to try to discourage disciples of Jesus, to try to speak to those who have received this identity as God's beloved daughters and sons, to, and to help us think uh, falsely, that God really doesn't care that much about us, or that God is somehow trying to hem us in or take something from us, that we're invited to serve in a slavish way uh, God's designs, and that we all God wants from us is that we obey rules and that we do things we don't like. And really nothing is further from the truth. As I said, God is all about our flourishing and wants abundant life for us, wants us to grow into the women and men he has created us to be beautiful reflections of his own divine image in, in some way. It's all a, a, sort of a long way of saying that, uh, that the life of discipleship will be challenging. So we don't imagine that we'll go through the Christian initiation or regularly participate in the sacramental life of the church, and that that will mean that everything will be bright and peaceful and, and cheerful in, our, in every circumstance. We do have those experiences too, which is beautiful, but kind of the ordinary position of a, an experience of a disciple is that we are challenged both to live our faith ourselves, but also to share it with others, which means we offer it to others as a gift. I love the word challenge that you used, because in a very real way, it's an opportunity sometimes for us to be able to grow deeper in our own understanding. I remember as a, oh gosh, it, 
in my, I was in my early 20s and very on fire for the faith and speaking to my aunt who had left the church years before. And as I was talking to her about my enthusiasm, she said to me, well, you really don't believe in that perpetual virginity of the Blessed Mother. I mean, you can't really believe that she was assumed. And at that particular time, I didn't know how to respond to her. And that uncomfortable feeling I had, all it did was make me quest to find out more about that. And once I realized it, it was a great joy for me. And that can be the case for many of the things that the church teaches. Maybe we just don't understand it fully yet. We don't understand it fully yet and maybe don't embrace it joyfully. Uh, at, at the same time, I would say we want to make sure that we don't see our faith as a kind of hobby where we just sort of get fascinated by the unusual things. There are some unusual things because there's, uh, we're being drawn to supernatural truths, which are often difficult for us to, to comprehend or understand. And certainly when we, when we sort of pick it apart and look at individual aspects of, of church teaching, apart from the whole, they may not make sense. And, and often that's what people outside of the church will see or will sort of fasten on and confront us with, with things that seem quaint or anachronistic, you know, that are hard to understand and hard to explain. So it, there's nothing wrong with us, with our learning more about how the beliefs of Catholics fit into the, the whole picture. It's also important, though, that we as disciples of Jesus initiated into the church have been catechized and that that catechesis is rooted in the kerygma, in other words, in the central teaching of God's love for us in Jesus Christ and the power of Jesus as the Son of God to overcome sin and, and to save sinners the belief we have that we're incorporated into the life of, of the risen Christ, our membership in, in the church. So many other things will flow from that, of course, and, and the church, guided by the Holy Spirit, has come to understand herself in various aspects and with various truths over many years, and our faith in Jesus Christ and our faith that he has established the church. Our faith that the Holy Spirit lives in the church and, and guides her makes it possible and to see how uh, doctrines and other aspects of our faith, like the perpetual virginity of Mary, how that fits into the whole and how it makes sense. And then that seems to be a, a beautiful aspect of the whole picture rather than something quaint or, or maybe a stumbling block. And we can witness it today, even in the discussions that take place in a very public way sometimes of the particularities of certain doctrine in the church. I mean, it shouldn't be surprise us. I mean, we can even go back into history and see that St. Augustine, St. Jerome didn't exactly see eye to eye on certain things. And yet, those areas of doctrine that are being discerned within the body of the church, we have to be careful not to allow that to become sources of vice in our own hearts as opposed to allowing us to practice virtue in our conversations. You're right. We want to make sure we don't either try to cut corners ourselves or try to look for ways to condemn other people who might disagree with us. The challenge, we see it going on in the church now. It seems a little messy, but it's been messy since the beginning, as you said, and an important reason for studying the history of the church for us to be able to live with the idea that it's always going to be a little bit messy, both internally for ourselves, but also as we live and pray and work together in the church. What often we're experiencing is the an attempt by people of goodwill to apply doctrine, the teaching of the church, to, to particular situations, which, you know, can change from, from age to age. There's not so many things that are new. You know, some circumstances are, are different. But it's, it's what, what really, the, you know, the Lord is asking of us to live the truth in the particular circumstances and the place in, 
which we find ourselves. That aspect of church history, again, that's something very important for us to understand because I'll just be very real about this. On any given weekend, you can tune into cable television and there is a purported history of events, whether it's ancient times or the Middle Ages, particularly the Middle Ages, where there's a portrayal of events that casts a horrible light on the church and is taken out of context and misunderstood often. And those things, those moments in church history are often brought up to believers to as some sort that how can you possibly be a part of, of a church like this? Um, the, the church is made up of sinners and has been from the beginning, so it's guaranteed to, to be messy. And I don't say that lightly, but Jesus has established the church so that sinners could come to him and be forgiven, have life uh, in him through the power of his death and resurrection. But our sinning doesn't stop completely in this world, and we, even those of us who are trying to practice virtue can find ourselves falling back into sin. We remember two things that are true. The church is made up of sinners. Jesus, the risen Son of God, is our head. So we have our trust in him, and it's his power that, that saves us, that, that redeems us. We don't individually or collectively pull that off ourselves. And so we never should hold ourselves up, either individually or collectively, as a kind of superior group that can lord it over others. We come to the Lord and receive his forgiveness finally in humility, and, and that humility characterizes our actions, our relations with, with one another. At the same time, we should never be afraid of history. And so many of the things that are sometimes portrayed as critical of the church tell partial truths about us or about others. It's, it's important that we ourselves learn the whole truth, and the whole truth will be a mixture of human sinfulness and divine grace and intervention, divine, uh, divine redemption. But it, that's that drama which is really the story of God's love for us and God saving us and his son Jesus. That's renewed in every age and every generation. It seems we have to learn uh, the lessons that our parents and grandparents had to learn. There are confusions and, and controversies in every age. There are people who love to foment those things. And again, that's the, it's the work of the devil always to divide and to um, introduce doubt, uh, to pit one group of people against another, even, even within, within the body of Christ. In our next episode, we'll continue our conversation on why being a Catholic matters, and we'll begin to explore the rite of baptism. You've been listening to Why It Matters, an exploration of faith with Archbishop George Lucas. To hear and or to download this episode, along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts in cooperation with the Archdiocese of Omaha. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission. And if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax deductible, to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about discerninghearts.com And join us next time for Why It Matters, an exploration of faith with Archbishop George Lucas.